Let bliss still upon you. Hello everyone, this is Julia from the Bliss Tour. Today I'm talking to writer Sophie Darling, the author of Three Lessons in Seduction and Tempted by the Viscount, her latest book, which will be released today, June 27th. We talk about what it's like to be a newly published author, the weather in Iceland, and how a Krispy Kreme donut can bring on a moment of bliss. Hi, I'm uh, Sophie Darling. I'm an author who writes historical romance. I consider myself pretty much a newbie to the published world. My first book released last year, and my second release comes out in just a few weeks. I'm happy to join you today, Julia. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Your first book was Three Lessons in Seduction, and your second book, Tempted by the V-Count, is coming out on... June 27th, which is quickly approaching. What's it been like being a newly published author? Is it still a thrill? You know, um, it, it is, a, you know, this is something that it's been kind of, um, there are two sides to being a published author, newly published author. <clears throat> you get your contract for publication and you're super excited. It's the best thing that's ever happened to you. And and that lasts for, for me, it lasted for like a day. <laughs> and then I woke up the next day and realized I knew nothing about the business of being published. I, I know how to write a novel, but I don't know how to, I did, you know, it was this feeling, this overwhelming feeling of not knowing how to publicize a novel, market it, brand myself, all these different things that, um, it was a fairly steep learning curve and, you know, so that, that kind of took the thrill out of it. And, and then I just had to kind of knuckle down and get to work in a whole different way. Yeah. So what was, <laughs> what was the knuckle down and get to work? What were some of the first things you did that you thought were most important after the book was released? How has your mind changed about those first things? Would you do something else would you do any of okay. that differently from the first book? My publisher is a small publisher. Mm -hmm. I, I, I queried this publisher because I was interested in this one editor. So I, I sent my, you know, query letter, some chapters to her and, um, her, you know, it was the, the whole typical process. Um, and when she responded and she was interested, I, I had some other uh, publishers who maybe are considered bigger. I kind of say that quote unquote, I don't, I don't really know, mm -hmm. but, um, I decided to go with these, with the smaller publisher because of her. Cause I, I know that I'm new and that I need a good editor who is excited about my work. Okay. So, so then I realized though, with a smaller publisher, you have to do so much yourself. You have to do your branding. You have to do your social media, you have to, um, you know, link up with these reviewers and bloggers, you have to do all of that yourself, pretty much. I mean, my, my publisher has done a few things. Um, one really great thing my publisher did recently was they got me a book bub back in May. So, nice. you know, they, they do. 
yeah, they do some, they've done some good things for me. Definitely. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with my publisher, but there's this other side though, that I have to work. So I have this good friend, a high school friend who is a publicist. <laughs> and so I contacted him and he's not a book publicist, but he's, he's, he's done his whole career with it, but he's partnered with this woman who is kind of a, she's really good at branding and, um, and visuals and, and, and graphics and all that. So I, I got in touch with film and, and we worked on, you know, what's the Sophie Darling brand? What does it look like creating a website, creating a social media presence and doing all that. So that was, that was like the first thing that had to be done. And I wouldn't change that. But I do think one thing I would, I would still, you know, I wouldn't change having used them. But there were certain things that I'm doing differently for second book release than I did for first book release. You know, just getting more, more, uh, getting involved with people, contact, you know, contacting people, linking up with people who are very specific to the romance genre who have those connections already with all the bloggers and everything, you know, for, for Scott and Jennifer, uh, it was a learning process. It was kind of a, a learning curve for them as well. So I would definitely, you know, I wouldn't bypass them, but I would definitely add in some other people kind of like I've done for the second book. The publicist you hired, had they ever done, um, I'm assuming they hadn't done a romance before. Had they ever done a, a, a book? No, they hadn't. You know, this was just me not really knowing much about the business of, of being published and just feeling pretty overwhelmed and not knowing who to speak to and, and how to, you know. So one thing my publisher does, they sent me this, this you know, 15-page kind of um, – you know, here, now that you're published, here's what you need to do kind of booklet and PDF file. And so I looked through there and I contacted, I got with Scott and we contacted all of those bloggers and reviewers and, you know, got a few answers. I do, but you know, the interesting thing is I ended up getting some bigger review sites using Scott Then maybe, I don't know if I would have gotten my review at um, USA Today, Happy Ever After right. or at our at, you know, and I have, a, I also got an RT book review. So, you know, I do think that he's helped me a lot with that. You know, some of the smaller ones, I, I definitely could get those myself. You know, uh, you just send them a nice little note and, you know, they'll tell you yes or no. I mean, you mentioned RT reviews. RT is closing. Uh, yes. No, they've, they've closed. And I know. I was just... <laughs> I, I think we've had this discussion before. It was a place that was really focused on the readers and what the readers were really interested in. How do you think having a review in RT affected your sales or your brand or your publicity? At when, I, when I received my review, which was, oh, I'm trying to remember when my RT review came through. I think it came through earlier this year, maybe. Mm -hmm. It was a few months later. You know, I, I received a really great review from them. It's just that I'm not a big name yet. So, but what it does and, you know, the value of a good review, and I don't think it impacted sales at all. Because again, <laughs> I don't know who actually, you know, went there and saw it beyond mm -hmm. me telling 
people who are already following me. Hey, it's there. Go see it. But what it does is it, it confers authenticity. Mm. If RT gives you that four-star review, you can put that on your website. You can put that on your, and it is, that review is on the front page of my website. <laughs> you can put that review on your Amazon page. And, you know, so when people are scrolling down, it's like, okay, I don't know this author. But they do have a USA Today review. They have an RT book review. So, okay, I can, I can give this new-to-me author and new author, <laughs> debut author, a chance. You know, because you're asking people to spend their money. And, and, you know, it's like, well, I'm an unknown. But that gives you not just authenticity. It gives you not a platform, but uh, sort of a window that people can look in and say, hey, this is romance. Mm -hmm. This is RT USA Today, Happy Ever After. That's a platform for this. That's mm -hmm. pretty broad. I mean, I don't think you can get much broader than USA Today. Yeah, the USA Today, you know, that one, you know, it ended up being such a really like, I guess, I, I mean, I think of it as a windfall because that has to do with my imposter syndrome, but <laughs> <laughs> the whole other conversation, but like the week before release, they, they did an excerpt, they published an excerpt on their site. And so that was nice. That was some exposure. And then a few months later, I did get a review um, it was a really good review, and that reviewer actually included me in her end of end of the year list as well. She Yay. included the book as like a recommended read for you know like my favorite books of this year. So nice. that was really nice. Yeah, yeah, it was. But again, it's just that whole thing of that was my debut novel, and to have it included in that way was was really cool. And I have to say, you know, USA Today Happy Ever After they're very author friendly for the authors. I mean, for sure. I mean, I've, I've had just really great experience with them. Awesome. That's actually good it, to I mean, know. It, it is. I mean, it, it seems intimidating because of the name, but yeah, it's always said, you know, we'll work with you in these different ways. And you know, who am I? I mean, I'm not Eloisa James or, you know, Elizabeth Hoyt. I'm just little Sophie Darling over here, but it, it's nice. That is nice. Because it's, and it's such, whenever I think USA Today, I don't even, I barely think of a website. I think every time I've ever stayed at a hotel, the paper I get is <laughs> USA Today. <laughs> just like, it's everywhere. Especially if you're not at home and spending the night somewhere. Another question I had for you, I wanted to talk about your writing. Because mm -hmm. when I read Three Lessons in Seduction, I, I talked to you about, uh, uh, a lot about your style because your style reminded me of some classical elements. And when I say classical, I don't mean classical romance. I mean, like calls back to that classic balance um, that you see in classical Greek writing. So I want to talk to you a little bit about literary influences, literary fiction influences, what you think influences your style, your writing? Okay, well, in terms of my writing, I think being having been being a lifelong reader of classics has definitely influenced my writing. It's, it's what I was always interested in reading. I read Great Expectations when I was 11. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, I did. I, I'm like the nerd who did that. And, and I suffered through and I hate that. I mean, but like David Copperfield even, because I thought I really liked Charles Dickens and I, and I kind of do. I mean, I have, I have some, I have some ambivalent feelings about him, but um, Great Expectations though is such a great story. It's so much fun. And, uh, but the language, you know, and I feel like I just kind of programmed my brain with that sort of language just growing up, you know, because it was, that's all I read was classics <laughs> as a teenager, even. Um, and by the time I made it to Jane Austen and, you know, George Eliot and all those authors, I do feel like I'm just kind of wired to write the genre I'm writing because it's definitely not necessarily a conscious choice in terms of the writing. It, it's just that that kind of flow of language just kind of naturally happens. I don't really have to struggle for that now to be less formal. So then sometimes I'm like, I really need to take that down a notch. You know, it, it really doesn't need to be, I need to remove that semicolon, you know, <laughs> this does not need 10 semicolons. I need, you know, some paragraph breaks. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's, yeah, it's just one of those things. I think if, if you're going to, you should write what you read. I'm, I'm a firm believer in that <laughs> because that is the language that will flow from you. So how did you go from writing, from reading David Copperfield and Great Expectations to writing historical romance? Oh, my gosh. So when I was 14, I, um, my mother, when I was a teenager, she lived in Brooklyn. So I would go up there every summer. And, well, there aren't as many of them around now. I mean, they used to be all over you know, all over, but, you know, used bookstores, like yeah. not just half price books, but just these little hole in the wall used bookstores that just smelled musty. And, and they just had that, that smell, like you open <laughs> the door and it just immediately soaks into your hair and just like everything. And, you know, you, you walk into that interior space and the, and all these paperbacks just, you know, up to the ceiling just, you know, all around. And anyway, she had one of those near her and it had all of these, all of these romances. I, I think it was pretty much, I would say that store was 80% romance and in science fiction, there was, <laughs> there was romance in science fiction and that was pretty much it. And I picked up this book. It was called love's hidden treasure by Carol Finch and it was the first historical romance I ever read and, and like all the twists and turns that happened in it I mean I gasped I was like oh my gosh I can't believe that just happened you know because I'd never read one and I didn't understand the pacing of it yeah I mean you know <laughs> it's all a surprise <laughs> it was it was and then and then I mean from there like I read that book and like 36 hours. And then I discovered Kathleen Widowis and I, I cruised through all of the Kathleen Widowis books. And then, so I would spend my summers with in Brooklyn. <laughs> Plus New York overwhelmed me. Like, you know, it's overwhelming. I'm this girl. <laughs> wow. 
I, you know, I'm this girl from the South. And when I went and I had the stepsister who was such a Brooklyn, New York girl, and she would ask me to go out with her and I would just be like, oh, I'm going to read my book now because she and her friends are just so, so Brooklyn. <laughs> it was like, I just don't know if we can hang out. I don't know. <laughs> We're just so. going to hang out, catch the subway with no sign. It was yeah. probably when the subway had no signage. <laughs> like oh. you get on a train, you don't know if it's an express or where it's going. Come out to Brighton Beach with us or something. And I'm like, oh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would never go to the beach in New York. I'm sorry, New York no. City. Just like yeah. so many. Uh, no, stop. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to go down that when I lived in New York story path right now. Uh, I will so spare you. I, you know, and so then I would read, I didn't read as much, as much romance when I wasn't around my mom. I'm like, you know, in the school year, I'm just reading, you know, you're just going to school, you're doing your thing. But then when I was nursing my, my first, my firstborn son, I, um, I just started, I started reading historical or just romance like crazy. And it was pretty much historical. And I read this Mary Jo Putney series that um, the first book is uh, Thunder and Roses. And it centers around these soldiers who are at Waterloo. And it was just such a great series. And that that's really when I was like, oh, I think I want to write these someday. <laughs> that she really inspired me. But I, I to yeah. go back to that first one, Love's Hidden Treasure by Carol oh, yeah. Finch. And oh. then talking about great expectations. I wonder, I, I, I think some people don't realize that a lot of historical romances are almost like adventures. Maybe I should say maybe there's a strain in romance, whether it's historical or contemporary, that's really an adventure. Like you are just going to go yeah. on a ride. All these crazy things are going to happen. They're going to be on a ship. They're going to be running in across the desert. They're going to be doing all these things. And that sort of, that sort of reminds me of going back to a classic, like great expectations or mm -hmm. something like that, where there are just a lot of characters and there's a lot going on, but there's a happy ending and there might be yeah. sexy times. <laughs> mm -hmm. well you know the thing is is like great expectations using that as an example it does have a lot of twists and turns it mm -hmm. it you know you have pip and you have this adventure and there is even kind of a love story but it's not fulfilling i mean it's not satisfying at all what ends up happening in great expectations because it's, it's not a romance but I had been reading books. I was completely primed for historical romance, though, mm -hmm. because, mm -hmm. you know, these classics, they really make you work for it. You have to um, you have to get through a lot of language like, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you, you have to the pacing is slower. It's more gradual. And, you know, and Charles Dickens, he wrote in his book books in a serialized fashion. So he definitely understood the cliffhanger and twists and turns and the value of that. But you know, in the modern day, I mean, you, you just have to work harder to get there. But when I read Love's Hidden Treasure, it was just like, it, it was, <laughs> to use a drug reference, but it was like crack. It yeah. was like, it's all those twists and turns, but the language is easy. And, and there's this, you know, like 
handsome man and this, you know, this pretty woman and, you know, they're adventuring together and all the things that happen. It was just, I, I Faster just, pace. Not, oh man, the pacing and, and there is the happy ending. The resolution is a great resolution, but it was, and that, that book is set in the American West. It was fun. It's a fun, I, well, I don't know. <laughs> I need to reread it. I need to, I need to <laughs> reread it and go. It, hmm. I know. I, it occupies such a special place in my heart. And I feel, I suspect if I reread it upon rereading, I think it'll be problematic. I, I think it might be. So All of our know. old faves are. But then, you know, thinking about Dickens again, I'm still stuck on Dickens now. But didn't he write by the word? Didn't he get paid by the word? He did before he, he became his own publisher. Ah, okay. I yeah. didn't know that. Oh, yes. He was a businessman. Interesting. All right. Oh, yes. He really understood how to, you know, writers who complain about this modern age of having to do all their own publicity and having to market themselves and do all that. You know, I mean, Charles Dickens was doing it. I mean, authors have always had to do it. That's Interesting. I had no idea. Ooh, yeah. Okay. Do you ever consider writing fantasy or contemporary? Um, well, I, I have had an idea for something not romance related at all. I would, um, and very inspired by my recent trip to Iceland. Um, I'd like to write. Yeah. I'd like to do a, I have an idea for a trilogy that, so that was inspired by that. That would be, you know, a completely different deal. So yes, I do plan on writing in a different genre at some point. Nice. So Iceland, we, we went to Iceland within, a, we both went to Iceland separately, but within an, a month of each other, I think. What did you, <laughs> so you were totally inspired by Iceland and was it, it's, the people, the geography, the crazy cold weather. Can we stop for a second and talk about how cold it is <laughs> in Iceland? So I've never, I used to live, I lived in Chicago. I've never been that cold in my life. I just, it was, well, I was, wind. yeah, it's the wind. It was, someone, did you hear this? It was the sort of joke was the Iceland is the, third windiest place on earth and no one lives in the other two places. <laughs> I think that has to be true. Well, <laughs> there's nothing, there's nothing between you and the Arctic circle. So the wind that you're feeling is just straight off the Arctic circle. I mean, it's, it's cold. It's that's, beyond cold. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. It just, Oh my God. It's so cold. But what, what inspired you for, for, for an Iceland trilogy? You know, there are a great number of factors that inspired, um, you know, they're, uh, they were relatively recently settled. Um, so they don't have like a huge long history of humans on their island. Um, that's interesting to me. Uh, the fact that they were set, their first settlers were actually Vikings. Um, <laughs> that's really interesting. Nice. Um, <laughs> You know, so, and, and, you know, Vikings, they, they were interested, uh, they were just, they kind of, oh, how do I want to say it? I mean, Vikings would conquer wherever they went. 
but they, there was no, they didn't really have to conquer anything in Iceland. They just kind of, they went there and like, oh, this place is great. I guess they didn't even think it was that cold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but they, hey, this but place they is have, great. It's a little cold, but uh, you know. But they have like maybe a little bit of a difficult history so that, you know, I think there's some really great conflict that can be used just right there in the story. They brought in slaves from the British Isles. So that inspires immediately. That's inspiring conflict in my mind because those those slaves eventually just those are the Icelandic people. You know, the Icelandic people are descended from the Vikings and their slaves, you know, and yeah. how did that all resolve? And. Uh, there's an, you know, I mean, we know how it resolved in, in the U.S. and we know how it resolved in different places. I, I don't necessarily, I don't know that history, so I'm interested in it. And then I recently saw, and you were there too, but um, Beverly Jenkins spoke for us. Oh, at, yeah. At an, an RWA meeting and uh, she was talking about world building and how she uses geography and how that inspires her. And I completely agree and related to that. Yeah. Um, because yeah. that's definitely something that inspires, uh, that, that inspired me in Iceland is the geography and the weather and how it creates a certain kind of people, you know, they're a little bit harder, you know, you have to be, you have to be yeah. tough. It's not yeah. a place where people, like you, you were talking about being a Southerner before, it's not a place where <laughs> you walk down the street and people smile at you or greet you because it's so cold you have to wrap up your entire head <laughs> mm -hmm. exactly. who is that even I don't know but I need to get inside because I'm so cold so cold I mean and, and to, when you're that cold you know you have to be a pragmatic person you know what kind of personality traits you know, um, if, yeah, if you don't wear your jacket, you will die of exposure in 30 minutes, mm -hmm. you know? So it, I, I, I found Iceland to be pretty interesting, interesting place and just magnificent. It's gorgeous. It is beautiful. I don't think I've ever seen so many waterfalls and they were just all <sighs> brilliant. I think Game of Thrones films there. <laughs> Uh, quite a bit. Yeah. And it's just, it's really beautiful and really mm -hmm. cold. I, I want to go there during the summer. I think it would be interesting to yeah. go there when yeah. it's not cold. Yeah. Uh, but when it's warmer. Yeah. I would love to rent a car and just drive the entire ring road and just have enough time to do, to do that. Let's do it. And yeah. really good seafood. Did you get, do you eat <laughs> seafood? Did you guys have seafood there? Yes, we did. They have this, like, wherever you go, just order the fish stew. It is so good. It's, it has all kinds of other things in it as well. Yeah, like every every bit of seafood. It's like Icelandic gumbo. Yeah. Yeah, I could say, yeah, Icelandic gumbo. And then the, not they're not lobsters, they're like tiny lobsters, langostini. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you had any when you were there, but they melted in your mouth and I kept thinking, is this some sort of chocolate or is this some, I kept trying to like, what's this really good tasting? It should be seafood, but seafood doesn't melt in your mouth. So it can't be, <laughs> but it is. I it was so good. Have that. I'll have it, to try that. I also did not have puffin. So no, you can eat people eat puffin. Apparently it is 
one of the most popular dishes in Iceland. And <laughs> I didn't know it. <laughs> I know. I don't want to eat a puffin. I don't know why. It's like eating the, 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 what's the thing on the cereal box? I can't a remember. A toucan? A toucan. <laughs> <laughs> a little toucan with your Fruit Loops? No. No. <laughs> oh, I feel bad now. So Iceland, I know you you like to travel. Are there other places that you've gone that inspired your writing, uh, in, inspired I, ideas? I think every place I've gone has inspired my writing. Really? I mean, definitely. At three, I mean, Three Lessons in Seduction um, is set mostly in Paris. You know, when I was fleshing out that that novel, different places that, you know, I had visited, it's like, oh, I want to have a scene, you know, set it here. And then just having been there, you know, and a lot of places aren't even the same as they used to be. I mean, the Palais yeah. Royal is no longer this vibrant, bustling place. Not in, not in the way it was. It doesn't have vendors or shops or anything. There is an old restaurant that's from the time, from, you know, that's 200 years old that's still there. Um, Napoleon ate at this restaurant, but it's one of the few kind of places that you can kind of go in the Palais Royal. They have this neat fountain, but, um, so you have to kind of reimagine some things, but I, I definitely, um, I just draw influence from wherever I go. Yeah. Is it, is it the geography? Is it the light? Is it the architecture, the people? I know you... Yeah. You are a marathoner and you travel to run marathons. Is it different mm -hmm. seeing a place when you're running through it as opposed to just sitting at a cafe? Do you know what I mean? Oh, I totally know what you mean. And yes, I was just thinking about a trip. So the Romance Writers uh, Conference in San Diego is kind of a good example. Mm. Um, I had to do... So I was, you know, marathon training and I think I needed to do, it was a long run. It was like eight or 10 miles, you know, I needed to get that run in. So I ran, ran like up this hill and at the top of it was this beautiful old San Diego and it was just gorgeous. And I would have never seen it if I hadn't gone for that run that day because, you know, you're spending all of your days just doing that conference and that's because that's what you're there for. Yeah. So it really is great way to see a city but uh, some of my my favorite runs have been like uh, Barcelona I had this really great run in, in Barcelona and you know it's just kind of like the magic hour when you get up at 6 a.m and it's just starting to to brighten you know with day and you're seeing a city you've never been in and and you're just just tracking mileage it's and it's parts of the city you would never see necessarily Definitely not in that way. Three Lessons in Seduction is mostly set in Paris, as you said. That's already so rare in historical romance. Most of them are set in England or Scotland, mm -hmm. somewhere in the UK. Would you set uh, think about setting a historical romance in uh, another country, somewhere in Asia or Africa or India? Yes, I um, I have a I have a romance planned. Um, to, I think it'll be, 
the fifth book of the series. I'm going to have a desert island element Ooh. romance. I miss those. <laughs> I just this, this is going back to my old school reading. You know, reading those those older romance novels that were just so rompy. Um, just thought, oh, I want to write a desert island romance someday. So <laughs> it's like a shipwreck kind of desert island romance. But that one will be um, the plan is the ship is on its way to Japan. So. So mostly that novel will be on the desert island and in Japan because it's kind of resolving some things that, you know, it, because it is a series. So there are certain oh, things God. that actually come up in, in this book that's coming out, uh, Tinted by the Viscount, has um, characters uh, who are Asian, uh, Japanese, and um, their stories will be resolved. In, in later books cool um what are you reading recently let's see i listened so i'm always listening to an audiobook and reading a book because oh. when i run <laughs> because when i run i listen to audiobooks so i always have one going kind of based on my whole Iceland experience, I decided to listen to Norse mythology by um, Neil Gaiman. Oh. Which came, I think in 2016, he narrates it. It is fabulous. Ugh. Oh. He is such a great... Oh, it's fun. It's so fun. Okay, I have to so, listen to that now. So I listened to that, and then I finished that, and I'm, I was slightly Neil Gaiman obsessed. So... I'm now listening to American Gods on audiobook, um, which is really fun. I'm just having a blast with that. And I'm, I'm right now I'm reading a, a kind of a post-World War II novel right now. So nothing period specific to what I write. I'm an, omniv I'm an omnivore when it comes to reading. So yeah. <laughs> I can be listening to or reading anything at any moment. Um, but something period, actually something you recommended, I recently read, which was Longborn by Joe Baker. Oh my God, I and love that book so much. <laughs> it is amazing. It's amazing. It, uh, I, I took notes. I, okay, I bought it in paper, on paper. And I have, it's annotated. I had to look up like certain things in this book. It's so well researched. And yeah. I thought I yeah. was a good researcher. This woman, I mean, she, it's deeply embedded in the era. It's it's a lovely love. It's a lovely love story on its own. It's just I I adore this book. It is amazing. I need to reread it. I haven't reread it um, in a while. I think I read it and then I reread it, but I haven't I haven't reread it in. Probably mm -hmm. four years, three years. And I need to mm -hmm. reread it because it is so, you know, there's so many, okay, I'm going to get up on a little stand here. There's so many Pride oh, yeah. and Prejudice retellings or sequels or prequels or all these things. And what she does is when people, I always defend it because what she does is she's not telling the story of, She's not doing an upstairs, downstairs. She's not telling the story of Elizabeth and Darcy 
through the servant's eyes. She's Mm -hmm. allowing the servants to have their own story. And it's just, Mm -hmm. it's They're the heroes of their own life. They're the heroes. I love whole idea that you know everyone is the hero of his or her own life yeah and it reminds me uh, what was that episode of not only can I not remember the name of the episode I can't remember the name of the series by the guy who was a comedian who was on Parks and Recs and he has his own show now but there was an episode of that show where you got, instead of like the giggly, well-dressed women who get into a cab, instead of getting their story, you get the cab driver's story and you get to oh, go to his home and so meet his friends and how he's trying to get a date. It was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember it, but it reminds me of that. And so many other Are things. Are you talking about Master of None? Yes, Master of None. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes, Master of None. I I'll find the episode that, that um, I'll find that episode and put it in the show notes, but it's sort of like that and that having that more and more. And it's so, it's so interesting. And it says so much about, I think Longborn says so much about work and what it means to, to work and have to have a certain kind of work and to be told that you're born to that kind of work. It's just all so, so, so good. And um, you're, you're actually speaking to my, my absolute favorite line and favorite moment in that entire book. It comes toward the end. I don't want to give, I don't want to have any spoilers, <laughs> but there is a moment when um, a character asks another character, well, what will you do if you leave here? And she says, I'll work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I will work. Yeah. I will make it in this world because I can work. Yeah. And it was so powerful to me in the context of everything you know about Pride and Prejudice and about Jane Austen's world, even about Jane Austen's life. Mm -hmm. I was recently in Bath and I went to the Jane Austen Museum and really, a lot about her it was it was great but um that line is really powerful when seen through that that lens you know of of the time so good Mm -hmm. and my last question what is your idea of bliss oh boy you know hmm does it have to be one thing? That's no. always my problem. No, it doesn't. Come. It can be a combination of things, like three things that work together that on their own mm-hmm. aren't blissful, but if you put them all together, they are. It could be anything mm-hmm. you want. You know, like um, like a Krispy Kreme donut, <laughs> the boss <Boston laughs> cream. <laughs> Boston cream, crispy cream donut. All right. Yeah. And? Um, okay. I mean, this is so cliche. It, it sounds like some, it might be a line from the Pina Colada song, but, you know, like sunsets, you know, a Pacific Ocean sunset uh, in Costa Rica. Uh, that is probably one of, definitely one of my most blissful things. Yeah. 
sometimes you, sometimes I sit on the sofa and I, I have this beagle who has not barked once, by the way, during this whole thing. Which That's I'm amazing. It really, okay. We might be jinxing it. But, um, <laughs> you know, there are times when he is just laying there and he's always laying there. He's always laying on my couch in my office and I can lean down and I can just smell like his warmth and he just smells so good. It smells a little bit like grass and just, just like something warm and a little, a little bit like rice and just kind of sweet. Um, that's, that's blissful. That's a little blissful thing during the day. Um, certain types of tea. I, I think for me, like blissful things are definitely smaller, smaller things. Smaller things. So it's not like one big thing. It's like these moments Mm -hmm. that you can just Mm -hmm. sort of stop and go that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Because I, 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 I can't, um, because otherwise if you're striving for a really blissful thing, you can't, you can never achieve it. Mm. <laughs> it Say more about what that. Bliss steal upon you, you know, bliss cannot be striven for. Say that, say, say more about that. Like okay. when did, how did you come to this philosophy? Um, well, it, it's kind of a, maybe a dark story, but if you don't I, want with, to tell it, that's that's fine. It's okay. Without getting into the details of it too much, I had a really a really good friend of mine passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, well, she she died. Mm-hmm. She didn't pass away. She died. It was it was a violent death. It was very sudden and unexpected. Uh, when I was thirty, and um, and she was she was just thirty eight, and she left behind four children. Um, you know, we were raising our kids together, you know, that sort of thing. We were very good friends. Mm -hmm. And after that, I just really had a huge seismic shift in terms of how I think about things and, you know, how life is and your trajectory is heading in this direction. You just think it's always, it's always going to be this straight line, you know, but of course it isn't. And you have to learn that at some point. But, um, I, I, I don't know. She was, she was just one of those people who was really sweet and um, she's always had a smile on her face. And I remember people came up to me after she, after she died and they said, you know, she looked like she had a light inside of her. And it's not that I, and I don't go through life thinking I have to be that way because that's, that's not me and that's, that's fine. But just being in a moment because you don't know what the next moment's going to be. You can plan moments, but um, you don't know if they'll be there, you know. So it, it, it definitely, you know, and, and that's when I started running. I'd always said, you know, I want to run a marathon, but I never trained for a marathon. You have to train for a marathon before you can run for run a marathon. So instead of saying I want to do something, saying I want to be a writer, um, you know, always like next year or all these, I just started doing the things that I said I always wanted to do or always wanted to be and, um, and just finding the joy kind of in the work, you know, when I'm running, it's hard, but I can listen to an audio book and that's fun, you know? Um, but just really savoring, savoring those little moments. I still have them, (laughs) you know? Yeah. You know, we're, we're all pretty lucky 
in that way. Savor the moment. I like yeah, that. Yeah, it's kind of cliche, but that's where no, my bliss is. No, it's, it is and it isn't. Uh, it is if someone says, savor the moment, and then they destroy your day. <laughs> Usually people are like, savor the moment. I'm like, don't tell me what to do. Um, <laughs> but it's, yeah, I, I mean, but that's all of yoga, basically. All of meditation yeah. is that idea. And the science mm-hmm. and, and the science of, of that's investigating meditation and yoga, that idea mm-hmm. of savoring the moment, being in the moment for just a second, enjoying mm-hmm. that instead of like, I'm going to go on this fabulous vacation in six months and I just have to soldier through everything else until then. Like, what can you enjoy yes. right now? Mm-hmm. And that's so and, important. But, you know, it's one of those things it's like, okay, you have this vacation plan six months down the road. So what, you're not really going to enjoy the six months. You're not going to, but then you, you could get to your vacation destination and it could be raining the whole time. So yeah. is that going to be a huge disappointment to you or, right. you know, you're just yeah. going to do your vacation in a little bit different way. I mean, is it raining you know, the whole time? Things. Is the hotel awful? Are there like awful people yeah. around? Uh-huh. Are there sharks in the water? Literally. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, one of my favorite, one of my absolute favorite little, I, don't know, I guess maybe it's an aphorism, but I think it's, I don't know. They say Einstein said it. I don't know if he did or not. Um, but I, I like this whole idea that a negative person finds a problem in every solution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so a positive person is going to do the opposite of that, right? You're going to, um, you're not going to do that, obviously. And, and just, you know, I don't like the idea of finding flaws in something good. So, you know, or, or demanding something has to be perfect. I feel like if someone says, you know, my, my favorite thing in the world is this, or, you know, what's your, I just think that, um, you're kind of setting yourself up for a bad time. <laughs> yeah, I agree. My bar very low. I think that's, I, this, is, this is actually what I worked myself around to. Keep the bar low. Keep it very low. Enjoy your Boston cream. Enjoy your, your sofa dog. <laughs> exactly. And your cup of tea. And my cup of tea. I love oh, that. Oh, gosh. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much to Sophie Darling for coming on the show. I love this conversation about her work and about finding bliss wherever you are, wherever you happen to be. Don't forget, Sophie's latest book, Tempted by the Viscount, will be out today, June 27th. Go grab a copy now. I had the foresight to pre-order it, so it will just appear. (laughs) I love doing that. This interview is available on iTunes. Please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. The music you are listening to was provided by Jamendo, and this is Ambient M by Anthony Rajakov. Again, thank you for listening. And let me know, 
What's your idea of bliss? I'm happy to join you today, Julia. Thank you for having me. Thank you for agreeing to a grieving. <laughs> I'm not grieved. 